Hey there, welcome to The Green Room, a regular podcast where we take a look at the world through a two-lane lens. I'm Ryan Rivette, and I'll be your host today. I want to do something a little different than usual. To commemorate the beginning of October and Halloween coming, I want you to listen to some noises. Here we go. So what do you think? Those are some pretty standard haunted house sounds. Stuff that provide us with mental cues that something frightening is just around the corner, right? Here's one more. Check this out. Does that scare you? Probably not. It's just an electric sander, and that doesn't really measure on the fear meter for most people. But you know what? Maybe it should, especially here in New Orleans. I want you to keep that in mind today as you listen to Thomas Beller. He's an assistant professor in the English department. He's also a writer and a dad, and this is his story. This is a New Orleans story, but talking about New Orleans specifically as often as the case can be very instructive more generally. The story of somebody who's moved to New Orleans, having been uh, unfamiliar with the city previously, coming from New York City where I was born and raised and spent my adult life until I started working at Tulane. And one of the things that struck me so powerfully about New Orleans was just how gorgeous it was from an architectural landscape point of view, both the horticultural floral part and the, the built environment. And I don't mean that merely in terms of, I don't know, the prettiness of the architecture. I actually really like kind of r- patina and this rusticated, I don't, I'm not that into tidiness. If things are too brand new, I get a little antsy. Then. I found myself in a very unfortunate situation where a next door neighbor in this big beautiful old house contracted someone to sand it who was sort of a freelancer uh, working on his own and I knew enough about lead paint because I had a, a at the time a six month old baby and a four year old girl to be concerned about this big sanding job but I couldn't quite get it through my head that I should be doing more than just playing defense. So there was swiffering, there was taping of the windows, there was a kind of anxious, defensive attempt to keep this dust away from the baby particularly and also the four-year-old. But that didn't go so well because at some point we had an elevated lead level, blood lead level with this, this little child. And my initial response, I guess, is what every parent would feel is just very upset uh, and worried. Uh, and also a little desperate in the sense of it's a complicated subject. The science is tricky. You know it's bad, but what exactly does it mean? What does it mean exactly medically? What, what do you do now? You know? What Beller did was write about it. He wrote about what was happening to his son to let people know the insidious nature of environmental lead poisoning. And one of the things he wrote, well, you know what, I'll let him tell it as he tells it better. I do wish that when a kid was exposed to lead, uh, the blood would start seeping out of their eyes. And the reason being, if that happened, people would immediately know something bad had happened. And there would also be this very natural response of, why did this happen? How did this happen? Who made this happen? What do we have to do so this kid stops bleeding out of their eyes? The reason I went to such a visceral, visual cue is because the reality couldn't be further from that. Even at its worst, it's sort of like wisps of smoke. This dust rises up and it kind of blows away in the wind. Once the problem was identified, 
the pediatrician treating Beller's son recommended that he get in touch with another member of the Tulane faculty, an internationally known expert on lead exposure, a man named Howard Milkey. My name is Howard Walter Milkey. I'm a professor here in the Department of Pharmacology and I work on a topic in pharmacology which is in environmental signaling. Every major city has lead that is accumulated within the, especially in the interior of the city. Uh, it's a massive problem. It's a worldwide problem. It's a global problem. We know that lead is a very serious toxin and there, there is no known safe level of exposure to lead right now. The clinicians have realized that lead exposure is at two or one microgram per deciliter, which is the measurement of lead in the blood. They still see some problems and learning problems, behavioral problems, different kinds of problems. The other side of the coin is that we not only have no safe level of exposure, but we have no known remedy or intervention of exposure. The nervous system gets hit hard. And when you start thinking about the nervous system, you're talking about learning problems, the memory problems, learning of all different kinds, uh, possibly autism. We see eclampsia thrown in there. So you have um, problems showing up in all amazing ways. It's a litany, and, and it's a long, you know, it's a litany that um, affects the people who are, have the highest blood lead levels in its, in its groups, communities, tend to have the highest morbidity. And their morbidity relates to lifespan, basically. Here's Tom Beller again. Scientists like Howard Milkey will tell you about the presence of lead and the consequences of the presence of lead based on various studies and different ways to break out cause and effect. The science is not ambiguous that if you take a group of kids and you, some of them are exposed to lead at a very young age, some of them are not. The ones that are exposed show all these symptoms and they're all bad and they're all liabilities. Beller continued to write on the topic and over the summer he wrote a piece for the New York Times. Talking to him about it, it's clear that he writes because that's what he does. It's his way of dealing with the situation. And he also writes about it to confront the issues that he's seen since his son's diagnosis. So, act two of this whole thing for me, since I'm a writer and telling stories is what I do, I became very aware of the difficulty of talking about lead. You are very alone when you're trying to raise a voice on this matter. That piece in the New York Times that I, that I wrote was partly to share my experience in an attempt to make other people not feel so alone, other parents, partly in an attempt to just educate a little bit about certain precautions you should take. For example, if someone is doing something clearly unhealthy, do not be polite, do not hesitate, at pr act as though someone's coming at your kid with a baseball bat. That's the level of intensity that your response should be. My idea is to raise awareness enough to create a few very basic steps, both on the part of parents like habits, you know, try to wash the kids' hands at all times, take your shoes off before you come inside, and freak out if anyone sands or if there's any sense that there's this kind of industrial dust coming into your life. Beller wants people to be aggressive in the way they deal with this issue because small changes can make a big difference. And Milky agrees. 
and says that the Beller family is really not unique. That's happening all over the city. A lot of children are getting very high doses of lead dust as a result. And that's clearly uh, something that can be changed. We, we can change this. It's a cultural problem. And I think there's immense possibility of changing right now. We have to figure out how to organize ourselves to think about the welfare of, of children. And I think we're not there. We, we're, we're not paying attention, uh, really. I mean, it, it certainly is an official policy. And that's our show. Special thanks to Tom Beller for sharing his story with us and to Howard Milkey for taking the time to edify us on the topic of lead exposure. Thanks for listening to the podcast, and we hope you'll join us next time in the green room. <laughs>